It's Thursday, March 15th. I'm Laura Lee Siemens. So I want to start by explaining how I choose the stories I cover each week. I'm definitely a news junkie. I read and I listen to everything. And every once in a while, a news story will make me ask, wait, how did we get to that point? And what is the story behind this? So I'll do some research. I'll find out. And that's kind of where this podcast came from. Normally, it'd be supper time and I'd be telling my family crazy things that happened in the news and the really weird story behind it. My family kept telling me, you should do a podcast. Normally, Monday evening, I decide what I'm going to be talking about. That leaves Tuesday and Wednesday to do some research and answer all the questions I have. My fear is always I'm going to get the story way wrong. So last week, I did a story on South Africa. I covered the history, the racism, and the turmoil that led South Africa to the place we have today. It's a very complex story. In doing my research, I could only find stories that were really one-sided, so I had to kind of piece all the information together. I did receive feedback from the story, and I talked to a few people. I was very happy to get feedback, and some of the information I shared was not correct, so I'm going to update that now. So I said the Dutch came to South Africa in 1653, but it was 1652. I also said in the podcast that Cape Town was the most important city for finance and industry, and this was according to one of the papers I read on the water crisis that is in Cape Town. However, the largest and most important city is Johannesburg. I also wanted to add some really important information. When the black population was given the right to vote in 1992, it was done through a referendum. The outcome of this referendum was actually 70 to 30 in favor of giving the black community the right to vote. Also, the turnout for the vote was 85%. That is huge for a voting turnout. It's clear that at this point in time, there'd already been a turning away from racism, and the country as a whole was looking for peace and wanting human rights for all of its citizens. I love it when I hear from people and they give me extra information. I also talked to some white South Africans who are currently living outside of South Africa and are trying to get their relatives out as well. There's kind of a sense of fear that a civil war may be close. Last week, I also covered the story of Mr. Winters. He's a 70-year-old pro-life man that was protesting for free speech and was arrested. Sadly, Mr. Winters passed away this week. His last tweet was, Come, Lord Jesus. So to hear all these stories, you can go back and you can listen to last week's podcast. While you're doing that, go to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review. That would be really helpful. So what happened this week? This week, we had the Ontario elections. So really, super fast backtrack of the story. Here in Ontario, our conservative leader, Patrick Brown, stepped down because of sexual abuse charges. With provincial elections just a few months away, we had a sudden race, and Doug Ford, Caroline Mulroney, Christine Elliott, they were all in the race. And then Tanya Allen came. She was a really socially conservative, um, without a lot of political background, and she got involved. Then Patrick Brown came back because he had proof he was framed and he wanted his position back. Then, just as suddenly, Patrick Brown was out again. In the debates, everyone was kind of surprised how well Tanya Allen did, able to defend her positions. Still, it looked like it was going to be an easy win for Christine Elliott. Then there was a problem with the voting. Since it was really rush voting, the Conservative Party decided they were going to go with online voting. So note to future elections, it didn't go well. So to start, you got a pin mailed to you in the mail. Thousands of people didn't get this pin number. I got mine. 
So when I got my pin, I had to go into the website, type in the pin, then I had to upload a picture of my photo ID, and then I had to wait for an email and wait and wait and wait. I got my email the day before voting closed, and some people are still waiting for their email. So Doug Ford, he was really pushing for the date of the election to be moved so that everyone who wanted to vote could. So it was moved up a few days, but people were still waiting, and Christine Elliott was pushing for the election to be closed. Since most of the people waiting were new Conservative Party members, it was pretty obvious they were probably going to vote for Doug Ford because he signed up the most new members. So then Saturday, the drama, oh my goodness. It was supposed to be an easy online voting. The computer was just going to tell us who won. So first it was delayed half an hour, then an hour, and it kept getting delayed. Thankfully, I was watching from home. I got three loaves of laundry done, swept them up the whole main floor. I made supper, ate supper, cleaned up supper. There was still no news. So then Twitter starts buzzing. There was actually a clear winner, but someone was contesting the results. And the Ford and Elliot's lawyers were locked in a room. So everyone was pretty sure Elliot won and Ford was contesting the results because not everyone had had a chance to vote. Then we heard news. Ford actually won and it was Elliot that was contesting. And she actually made people count the votes by hand. So, so much for the online voting. Still, the party refused to announce the winner. So Elliot's team all left. They were kind of angry. Then we found out there was a wedding that had booked the same room, and the bride and groom wanted in, so they actually kicked everyone out of the room. So it was very late in the evening when the party finally had to admit that Doug Ford was the winner. So before Ford was even announced as a winner, he was just rumors, the liberals already started with their name-calling tactics, and it's always the same. One person on Twitter, she said she was terrified for Ontario because there's a possibility they would elect a misogynist, homophobic, transphobic, anti-Semitic, Islamophobe to run the province. She was terrified. Really? These are the same words we always hear. I think they have them saved in their copy and paste clipboard. So I thought I'd go through these words, what these words mean, how Christians should respond to them, and then how to interpret them when liberals use them. So, misogyny. That is a hatred or contempt for or prejudice against women or girls. So how does a Christian respond? Well, unless you're a five-year-old boy who thinks girls have cooties, this is gross. Obviously, has no place in our churches. What does it mean when liberals say this about conservatives? It probably means a conservative is either pro-life or supports others' right to be pro-life. In Doug Ford's case, he believes doctors and nurses have the right to not take part in the abortion procedure if they're pro-life. It's kind of a long way away from hating, contempting, or prejudice against women or girls. Homophobic. That's a strong and unreasonable dislike of homosexual people, especially homosexual men. So how does a Christian respond to this? First of all, I'm not sure why the dictionary definition says especially homosexual men. I kind of feel like it should be about all of them. But besides that, Christians shouldn't have a dislike of any people group. The Bible tells us to treat all people the way we would like to be treated. So what does it mean when liberals say this about conservatives? Well, for Doug Ford, it's that he didn't want to march in the gay pride parade. And I'm not sure why it's suddenly essential that our politicians march in this parade. For one thing, it costs a lot of tax dollars to keep them safe while they're marching in a parade through Toronto. Also, this parade is not family-friendly. It's full of a lot of nudity. So unless the parade becomes G-rated, no one should be pressured to attend. It's totally fine for a politician to skip this event 
It doesn't mean that they hate gay people. Transphobic. That is an intense hatred or fear of transgender people. Once again, Christians, God calls us to love our neighbors, and that means every neighbor. So hating somebody is wrong. What does it mean when liberals say this about conservatives? It probably means the conservative believes in free speech and doesn't think people should be compelled to use pronouns that were invented two days ago. This is called compelled speech, and it's a line we can't cross in a free society. Anti-Semitic. Having or showing a strong dislike of Jewish people or treating them in a cruel or unfair way. Unfortunately, this is something that has spread into our churches through a false doctrine called replacement theology. And this teaching takes all the promises God gave to the Jewish people and gives those promises to our church. And this is something we need to be worried about and fighting against. But what does it mean when liberals say this about conservatives? Usually it's like an extra insult, a kind of cherry on top. Usually they don't even have a reason for it. Most conservatives are very pro-Israel. Usually actually the more liberal a politician is, the more anti-Semitic they become. And this anti-Semitism comes out in their anti-Israel stances that they take. Islamophobic, an unreasonable dislike or fear or prejudice against Muslims or Islam. So how do Christians deal with this? Across the world, Christians are being killed en masse by Islamic extremists. But in those countries where the persecution is at its height, Christians are being an example of God's never-ending, always-forever kind of love. It's this love that Christians are showing to the Muslims that are causing so many Muslims to turn to Christ. As Christians in free countries, we need to look to this example and be inspired by it. What does it mean when liberals call conservatives Islamophobic? It probably means a conservative believes in free speech and thinks it's essential that people be allowed to speak openly about concerns they have with any religion. People should be allowed to discuss Islam with the same freedom they have to discuss Christianity. So there you go. If a person was actually misogynistic, homophobic, transphobic, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic, you should stay away from a person like that. They actually sound really angry and they probably need some counseling. But there's a high chance that's actually code for their pro-life, believe in free speech, don't want to march in gay pride parade. And the danger of these terms being used incorrectly is that they lose their meaning. When a person really is these things, there's no way to warn people about it. We could actually elect a person with these beliefs because there's really no way to warn people. Everyone's become desensitized to the terms. This name calling could turn to hatred and actually end up becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. We're already seeing some of this in our universities and in our federal government. This week at Trent University in Ontario, there was a speech held called It's Okay to Be Against Whiteness. The liberals, the NDP, the media, they're all trying to put us into these boxes based on our race and they make us fight each other. It's a game we can't play because no one wins that game. We've reached a place in our Canadian politics that a few years ago I would have never believed could happen. A member of our Canadian Parliament told another member of Parliament that that member could not speak because of their sex and color of their skin. Yes, that is correct. That happened. Someone was told to be quiet because of their sex and the color of their skin. So what happened? How did we get here? This is a question I want to find the answer to for this week. There have been three waves of feminism in Canada. Strong women have fought alongside men to give women the rights we have today. 
The first wave of feminism was the suffrage movement. Women fought for the right to vote. And under the conservative leadership of Sir Robert Borden, women got that right in 1918. Feminism went silent for a few years after that, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And during this time, federally, there was two female senators and one female member of parliament. In the late 50s, the feminist movement began to speak up again. And under the conservative leadership of John Diefenbaker, a woman named Ellen Faircloud became the first female cabinet minister. And she was our minister of immigration. During the 60s and 70s, we had our second wave of feminism. And when the first wave was about political rights, the second wave was more education and workplace rights. There was definitely at this time some problems that needed to be addressed. And the movement did some great things for women, things I'm reaping the benefits of today. However, during the second wave, there was a radical stream of feminism. This stream was mostly in the universities. In the late 80s, a third wave of feminism came. This time, that radical stream had really taken over. One of the huge problems came in their studies and in their papers. The studies that came from these feminists, they weren't evaluated by people who were proficient in stats and studies. These feminists just evaluated each other. So the research wasn't given the opportunity for flaws to be removed. During this time in the 80s, there was a woman named Peggy McIntosh. She began teaching monthly seminars for college faculty members on the topic of this new research on women and how to teach it. This was that new research created by feminist activists and then evaluated by other activists. So for seven years, Peggy taught these classes and traveled all across the United States. The popularity of these classes grew and both male and female professors took these classes. Then in the late 80s, Peggy began to notice something. The men and the women they'd once been friends and really good co-workers, they suddenly weren't talking to each other anymore. Peggy's seminars had caused massive division in the university world. Perhaps she should have at this point re-evaluated her approach. She didn't. Peggy wanted her classes to be taught not to the professors anymore. Now she wanted them taught to the freshman class. The male professors and many of the female professors disagreed with this. Peggy writes more about the male professors that disagreed. In an article, she wrote, she quotes a male professor as saying, when you're trying to lay the foundation blocks of knowledge, you can't put in the soft stuff. Peggy seemed really surprised that her class was not getting picked up by the universities and being taught, and she blamed the male professors. In an interview, Peggy said she was surprised because she thought these men were nice men. But now she's beginning to realize they were oppressive men. But what she learned was that you could be oppressive and nice. And the word here, oppressor, is what's very important. Around this time, the movement went from being a feminist movement to being both a feminist and a race movement. The shocking idea that you could be nice and oppressive made her look at herself. Peggy began to believe that although she was a nice person, because she was white, she was also oppressive. Her idea then became that all men are oppressive and all white people are oppressive. These two ideas made her write a paper in 1988. White Privilege and Male Privilege, a personal account of coming to see correspondence through work on women's studies and white privilege. You'll notice she changed the wording. She says privilege instead of oppressor. The word changed, but the idea did not. And boom, just like that, privilege movement had begun. So Peggy made a list of 46 examples of white privilege. 
The more things on the list you check off, the more privilege you have. But you don't win the game by getting the most points. By privilege, she means oppressor. So there's this obvious flaw in this privilege oppression test. If you take the test in China, all the Chinese would have white privilege. If you took the test in Japan or Korea, it'd be the same. The Japanese and the Koreans would all have white privilege. Because the test doesn't test your skin color. It tests your majority privilege. So here's a question. Is it easier to live somewhere where most of the people look like you, speak the same language as you, and have the same customs, customs as you? Yes, it kind of seems obvious. It's easier to be a majority than to be a minority, and that's true everywhere. In fact, if you're going to be a minority anywhere, probably the best place to be a minority would be in North America. I have a lot of friends that grew up as missionary kids in other countries, and they would not be able to check off anything on this list. In 1988, when the paper was published, it wasn't given a lot of credibility in the mainstream. However, in the world of gender studies in the universities, it was the paper. Classes like critical race theory and whiteness studies, they all use this paper for the basis for more articles and more studies. Peggy continued to work, and she had a new program called the National Seed Project. And through the years, she would work with schools, and her paper would become well-known in the field of gender and race studies. The privilege movement didn't hit mainstream until just a few years ago. So in June of 2014, there was an essay in The Atlantic, and the term white privilege was used. The Atlantic is a well-respected paper, and having this term used in The Atlantic changed everything. Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity of Fox News, they both picked up on this term and they began talking about it, really attacking the idea. But the idea had been out for almost 30 years already, and it was about to be mainstream. There was another huge flaw in Peggy's work. For example, in 1988, when the paper was written, white people in the greater Toronto area would all have had white privilege because they were the majority. Today, however, that's changed. I speak in churches in the GTA, and there's many times I'm definitely the minority. When I visit these cities, I'm the minority not only in the church, but in the restaurants, the gas station, the shopping. I enjoy visiting these churches in these communities, but I can say if I lived in these communities and took the quiz, I would not be privileged. So how do they fix this? Do people say there's clearly a flaw to this argument? No, they just changed the test to make sure white straight males were still the privileged, aka the oppressors. The test evolved a lot in the last 30 years. Now there's tests being given out in university so people can get their privilege number. So you get plus and minus points based on your race, your gender, your sexual identity, if you're tall, if you're short, if you're fat, your skinny, your religion, your IQ. It's crazy. And the most points doesn't win in this game. The more points you have, the more privileged you are. And don't forget, privilege is code for oppressor. In the last three and a half years, this term became mainstream. But the term itself isn't even the biggest problem. Many theories have come from this area of study that are now just seen as truths. We believe them because it came from university and we assume appropriate checking of research was done. We assume these studies were done by scientists, but they weren't. They were done by activists. Activists with an agenda. Ideas like the wage gap. They're now quoted by everyone. Our prime minister quotes the wage gap. This idea was even part of his new budget. The wage gap is one of many theories that have come from gender studies in the universities. Economists have studied these theories and they've given proper control. They find out this gap just doesn't exist. So why do we not hear from these economists? Why is it that any voices stating a different theory or study were shut down? 
How did the university do this? How did they shut down anyone who dared disagree with them? Well, what happened in the universities is they brought something in called trigger warnings, microaggressions, safe spaces, all in a way to shut down any dissenting speech. Trigger warnings have to be given before any conservative speech is made. Microaggressions, they're anything you say that could hurt someone's feelings. For example, if you were to say, there's only one race, the human race, that's a microaggression. And also apparently now that's racist. It's all just power grab, a way to shame people into silence. At what point are we going to say a line's been crossed? How about when a university begins teaching it's okay to be against whiteness? Would that be a line we shouldn't cross? To say it's okay to hate a whole people group because of the color of their skin? Well, if every white person, even the nice ones, are oppressing everyone else, then I guess it's kind of rational to hate the white people. It's not just in our universities anymore. It's in our public school system. So we're starting to teach little kids now they should hate themselves because of how they look, something they have no control over. They should be ashamed of their race. This is a bad idea. It's a game that's going to end really, really badly. The checklist has changed a lot since 1988. Recently, there was a checklist posted for some schools so the students could see if they are privileged. So let's read through this. First of all, if you're able-bodied physically or mentally. Okay, common sense. If someone has a disability, things are going to be more difficult for them. And as a society, we should all step in and do our part to help them. And we know that. That's why even in the middle of the winter, we're willing to park on the other side of the parking lot when there's a space right next to the door. But we know that space is marked for handicapped parking. Not only do we all agree to not park there, we acknowledge as a whole that if people use this spot and they don't need it, they're jerks and kind of the worst part of society. Two, access to education. You live in Canada, you have access to education. It's free. It's called public school. And if you work hard and get good grades, you can go to college and university. I had to pay for my university. I worked all summer. I took multiple semesters off to work and save. I worked three jobs while I was in school. And I still ended up with school debt. But I had access to education. Number three, Christian. I'm actually going to address this at the end of the podcast. Four, cisgender. So if you've never heard of that, it's okay. It's one of the things that's been in the university world for a while, and it's now becoming mainstream. Yay. It means if you self-identify as the gender you were born with. Okay. So I guess, according to this poster, if you live your life content with the body you have, you will have an easier, happier life, according to this poster. Heterosexual. And the once again, according to this poster, if you choose to live your life married to someone of the opposite sex, you will have an easier, happier life. Number six, male. Okay, as a female, I find this kind of gross. I'm not a victim, and my life is not worse because I'm a female. Maybe back in 1918, but in 2018, nope. It's complex. Men are bigger and stronger because, you know, science. But men also tend to get the more difficult and more dangerous jobs. There's pros and cons to being male and there's pros and cons to being female. Number seven, native English speaker. Yes, because it's an English country. Unless you're a native English speaker and you move to Quebec, that will not be easy for you. I have friends that moved to non-English countries and it was hard for them. That doesn't mean those countries are bad countries. Just like Canada is not bad because we speak English. It's just the language that we speak. Eight, Canadian citizen at birth. Yes, because it's easier to be born in a country than to move to a new one. My dad moved to Canada when he was nine. He saw a toilet flush for the first time 
when he was nine years old. His elementary school years were much harder than my elementary school years. But my dad made good choices in life, and I've been able to reap the benefit of those good choices. White. This is racist to the core. Let's look at the definition of racism. It's defined as pre-describing a preference or a prejudice upon a certain group of people based on their skin color. So what this poster is saying is if you're black, your family didn't do a good job and didn't give you a good life. The person who made this poster has never met you, but he knows that just because you're not white, your life is hard. Everything about this is racist. The entire list is meant to divide us. It wants to put us into groups, and that is the core of the racism that people fought against in the human rights movement. People are put into groups, and then their ideas are discredited, not based on if the idea is good, not based on if the argument's good, it's based on how many points they have on their list. This is not only ridiculous, it's dangerous. So it brings us to where we are today, with one federal MP telling another federal MP they had to be quiet because of their race and sex. So here's what happened. So Ahmed Hussan, the immigration minister, said the federal budget was historic for racialized Canadians. Maxine Berner, he's a conservative MP, he said this is awful jargon, and then he reminded us that we need to be colorblind. We should judge people individually and not as a collective group based on their skin color. Maxine said, I want to live my life in a society where everyone is treated equally and not defined by their race. This is when an MP named Celine said, please check your privilege and be quiet. So what was she saying? She was saying, you have a lot of privilege points. You are white, straight male. You are therefore an oppressor and are not allowed to speak. After a lot of back and forth, Celine did apologize. Maxine, however, said, an apology is not enough. We have to stop this privilege rhetoric. And he's right. This has to end. Dividing people into groups and then pushing those groups against each other, it's been done in history before. This idea of forcing a group into a box and calling them oppressors in order to make things equal for others that's the idea the Nazis and the communists both tried. It ends with millions of dead people. Unfortunately, racism and hateful groups, they're now growing across the United States and in Canada. People who would have never considered listening to these racist groups, they're now tuning in to see what they have to say. Why is this? Why is racism suddenly a thing? Well, if you tell a group of boys they're bad because they're boys and also they're oppressors because they're white and it doesn't matter if they're nice, you're still bad based on something you cannot change. These boys are going to look for answers. And unfortunately, a lot of them are starting to listen to these white supremacist groups that they would never have given an audience to before. If this is you, if you're feeling frustrated with the privilege movement and you're being drawn towards extremist group, don't do it. Stop now. You can't beat darkness with more darkness. You can only beat darkness with light. So be the light. Do not allow yourself to even listen for a moment to anyone that even hints at white supremacy. Instead, do what Maxine did. Refuse to play the game. You don't have privilege points. You're an individual. You should be judged by your personal character, by the content of your character. After all, that was a dream Martin Luther King had. Let's go back again and address this notion of privilege because you're Christian. This is one I actually agree with. Well, I agree with the word privilege. Even though the stats would actually not back this up, the most persecuted religion in the world today is Christianity, especially if you look in the Middle East. Did you know in the early 1900s, 20% of the Middle East and North Africa was Christian, and now it's just 4%? That's where Christianity started. Why is it so low? 
Christians have either fled for their lives or they've been killed. If you're born into a Muslim family in this area of the world and you convert to Christianity, you're jailed or you're killed. Even in North America, Christianity is the one religion that's still politically correct to mock and ridicule. Although this week on The View, they were forced to apologize for saying Christianity was a mental illness. So why do I believe it's a privilege then to be a Christian? Well, as a Christian, I have direct access to the creator of the universe. I can speak to him and he speaks to me. I can rest at night knowing that I'm forgiven for anything I've said or done that's wrong. I can live my life knowing that when I die, I will live forever in the presence of Jesus Christ. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of the King of Kings. I'm a child of the ruler of everything. That's who I am. That's a privilege that exceeds all other privileges. It's not a privilege just for me. Jesus didn't come to save the white people or Western society. Jesus is the savior of the world. He came to save anyone who calls on his name. White, black, brown, Chinese. He came for everyone. Dividing people into privilege boxes is not going to rescue the world from the problems that we face. Turning to Jesus Christ will rescue the world from the problems we face. Jesus loves the people in Russia, in China, in India, in Afghanistan. He died for the people of Africa, for the people of Iran. He wants a relationship with the people of Jordan and the people of Egypt. He's the savior of the world. Maybe you're listening to this for the first time. Maybe God sent you to this podcast to hear this one thing. The God that made the whole universe. That God loves you. He loves you. He loves you enough to die for you. And he's powerful enough to raise from the dead and powerful enough to save you. If you turn to God, you tell him your story for all the hate that's in you, for every wrong thing you've ever said or done, every wrong thing you've even thought. If you tell God you're sorry for that and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, he is the saving one, he is God himself. If you call on him, you will be saved. So right now, do that. Call on him. Tell him you're sorry. Tell him you believe. Ask him to save you. He will. I'm Laura Lee Siemens. To chat with me about what you've heard today, you can check out my blog or my website, lauraleesiemens.com. See you next Thursday.